That said, I would turn our attention now to 1 Peter and would remind us of where we were last week. Last week we read, we were in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, where Peter says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul, keeping your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. We talked last week about the importance of fighting for holiness in this life as believers, fighting against that pool of sin in our hearts, and secondly, living lives of gospel integrity, that as we proclaim that there is salvation only by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ into the world, that we also live lives that mirror that statement, that we have a Christ-like sort of ethic and way of living in this world, that we live honorable lives. You may be wondering, having read those verses last week, well, what does an honorable life look like? What does a a life of gospel integrity look like? Well, Peter the Apostle is good to us in that he spends the next several verses uh, throughout the the end of chapter 2 and the first half of chapter 3 showing us what a life of gospel integrity looks like, what the honorable Christian life in this world looks like. And we see here in chapter 2, verse 13, through chapter 3, verse 12, that Christians... Followers of Jesus are commanded to live honorable lives among non-believers in this world by doing two things. Submitting to God's delegated authority in the world and loving each other, loving other believers deeply. Let's look at the Apostle Peter's word to us. And if you're able, this is a long passage today, but if you're able, would you please stand with us as we read in honor and stand with us in honor of reading God's word. Peter here again, in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes this, beginning in chapter 2, verse 13. He says, Be subject, for the Lord's sake, to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme, or to governors as sent by him, to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God, honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his footsteps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins on his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women of Uh, This is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. And Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, 
showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Now, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And God bless the reading of his word. You can be seated this morning. So Christians, followers of Jesus in this world, who are living as strangers in a strange land, are commanded here by God through his servant, Peter, to live honorable lives among people who don't believe in Jesus by doing two things, submitting to authority and loving one another deeply. We live honorable Christian lives this way, and and we find here that honorable Christian living requires first submitting to authority. Now, let me say at the outset, we're going to deal with two words this morning that in our Western American culture and Western American uh, sort of society and background, we just don't like very much. These two words are submit and authority. This nation was founded by men who would not submit to authority. Okay, so we we fight against this. But I would say let, let us this morning not fight against these words, but let us fight for truth and for God's clear instruction to us in in his word this morning. First, that word submit. We don't like that word. It's a word we use with our dogs when we're walking them down the street. Peter uses two different words in, throughout the course of these verses uh, that are translated in English to, uh, to uh, translated as submit or be subject to. These two words are used synonymously. They don't necessarily mean different things. So if you come up to me later and say, well, what does this Greek word really mean? And what does this Greek word really mean? I'm going to say they both mean submit. But submit or submission, be subject to, does not mean obey without question. It does not mean blind, unquestioning obedience. But rather, being subject, submission, means willingly placing yourself under the authority and instruction of another. Think of a a soldier in the military who submits to the authority of his commanding officer because his commanding officer has experience and education and uh, a lifetime of of learning strategy and other things that, that he can then use to impart in a wise way to those that are under his care. Secondly, authority. Biblically, we understand that authority is not a bad thing. In our Western American mindset, we don't necessarily like authority unless we're the one that has authority. But in a biblical sense, we understand that authority, whether we have it or whether we are to submit to it, it's not a bad thing. Authority and submission to authority isn't a consequence of the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden. But authority and submission to it is a reflection of God's authority in the universe and over the world. Likewise, submission to authority is neither a morally bad thing. It's not evil to to submit to authority or for someone to be in authority over us. Even within God's existence as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as as a trinity, there is functional authority and submission. The Father submits to the, or the Son submits to the will of the Father. The Holy Spirit is sent by both the Father and the Son and doesn't do anything that the Father or the Son doesn't tell him. Now, among the three persons of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the three of them are co-equal. They are all equally God. They are co-eternal. They all have existed equally as God for all eternity. And yet, even within their existence, there is a, uh, a divine submission 
to different persons within there. So then we do well this morning to ground our understanding of submission to earthly authority in our understanding of the essential goodness of authority and godly submission to authority as things that are of God and from God. In light of this, especially in in our context, our Western individualistic libertarian context, we need to recognize that not only is earthly authority a gift of God and part of his intention, but also that our response to those who have authority and the way that we who do have authority exercise that authority says a whole lot less about what we think about the authorities in our life and a whole lot more about how we view God's authority. If we say that God is God, he is king of the universe, he has all authority, then we do well to submit to the authority that he has delegated to human beings and human institutions. And so Peter relates that here in his letter. He says, you, Christian, live an honorable life by submitting to authority, specifically in verses 13 through 17, governing authority, governing authority. Why? Because, as we see in verses 13 and 14, they are ordained by God. Peter says in verse 13 that we are to submit to governing authorities. That is, uh, in Peter's day, the emperor of Rome and the governors that were sent by him. Today, to presidents and to senators, legislators, uh, uh, governors, mayors, police officers. uh, Peter says they are to submit to governing authority for the Lord's sake. Not for the sake of those that they're submitting to, but for God's sake. Because in verse 14, we see that they are sent by God to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. God has a purpose in giving authority to governments. God ordains governments and governing rulers to be agents of his justice and righteousness in the world. Now, certainly, they don't always do this perfectly. We have good examples of of. Uh, ungodly, uh, unhelpful governing authorities like in North Korea currently, or perhaps uh, uh, the, the Russian government. Nor, nor always do, uh, other, do governing authorities exercise their authority in a, in a Christian sense, with a Christian worldview. But still they do generally, in a general sense, punish those things that Scripture calls sinful and reward those things that Scripture calls good. Whether you like or even voted for our current president, our governor, our legislatures, irrespective of how you feel, may feel about our police force or police generally in the nation, God's call on your life, Christian, is to willingly place yourself under the authority and to be obedient to them. Be obedient to them insofar as they do not force you to contradict or to deny the gospel of Jesus, either in your speech or in your actions. So my submission to governing authority ends... When the governing authorities tell me I cannot speak about Jesus or worship Jesus, my my submission to them. But insofar as they don't call me to do that, I submit, I obey, I follow the laws of the land and I live as a good citizen. Now, it doesn't mean that to be a good Christian is to be a good American. No, to be a good Christian is to be a a kind citizen that upholds the the fabric of, uh, of the social order in whatever country you may live. We submit to governing authority because these authorities are ordained by God, but also because submission to authority is honorable and contrary to the insults of non-believers. This we see in verses 15 and 16. Now, it was common in Peter's day for Christians who were outwardly Christians to to be called anarchists by those in uh, in the culture around them. Christians had one sort of confessional statement. That was, Jesus is Lord. Christ is Lord which is to say Caesar is not. 
And so because they're saying Christ is Lord, uh, those who are Roman non-Christians uh, in that day were calling them anarchists. You guys are trying to overthrow the, the emperor and the, and the governing order and everything else. You guys are crazy. But Peter says, no, you submit to governing authorities because Christ is Lord. Peter says here that Christians are to live in an honorable way, submitting to governing authorities in such a way as to silence the foolishness of those who say Christians only want to overthrow social order. Rather, believers are to prove by their respect of governing authorities, their respect for uh, officers of the peace, their respect for those who are elected or even just appointed to rule over us. That they would actually uphold, in in so doing, we actually uphold and seek to strengthen the fabric of social order. We submit to governing authority because they're ordained by God, because submission to authority is honorable. And and because uh, third and finally here, by honoring, we do this uh, by honoring everyone, loving one another, fearing God and honoring the emperor. Verse 17 of chapter 2 has these four imperative commands all in a row. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Believers are to honor all people because all people, whether they know Christ or not, whether they're a ruling authority or not a ruling authority, are made in the image of God and have unassailable worth and dignity as creatures of God. Honor everyone. But toward other Christians, we don't give merely honor, but also love. Peter says, love the brotherhood. It's one thing to honor someone, to show respect to someone. It's another thing altogether to love them. And we've seen that command to love believers already uh, twice in Peter's letter. With regard to authority in the universe, our fear is only to God. We fear God and not men. We're to honor everyone, but we fear God. And Peter says, out of our fear for God, who gives authority, who is all authoritative, we show honor to those to whom God has given authority. We show honor to the emperor, to those who govern us. Part of living an honorable Christian life is to respectfully obey and submit to governing authorities and their agents. It's a hard thing to do. We, we don't, in our own selves, in our souls, we don't want to do that. We want to be independent. We want to tell ourselves what is right and what is good for us. We don't want to submit to legislators and senators and presidents and governors. We'd rather decide things for ourselves. But Christian, understand this, that, that whether you like who is ruling over us or not, who is, who is governing our nation or even the nations of the world or not, God, only God has allowed them to be in the position that they are in even now. God has delegated authority to these human rulers, and we do well to submit to, the, to God's authority that he has delegated to them. Secondly, we're to submit to social authority, verses 18 through 25 of chapter 2. And particularly here, Peter keys in on the slave-master relationship. Now, slavery in the New Testament is not quite the same kind of slavery that we think of in American history, in the transatlantic slave trade. In the Roman Empire, slaves were often doctors and teachers, lawyers, business managers. But at the same time, they were still considered property of their, of their owners and had limited rights within the Roman Empire. Peter's not here in these verses writing to endorse slavery as a practice in the Roman Empire or even as a good thing in the world to do, but rather to address those who were both slaves and now Christians. 
Well, there's much in Scripture to use to speak against slavery, and good and faithful Christian men and women have used Scripture to fight against the evils of slavery throughout history. Peter's purpose here in these verses uh, is not to overthrow the institution of slavery, neither is it to endorse the institution of slavery, but rather for the immediate time and helping of Christians who are slaves uh, to know how to live with gospel integrity as slaves. It wouldn't have been likely uh, or even very probable in Peter's day to overthrow the institution of slavery. Peter's, Peter's desire is not to do that, but neither is it to condone it. He's just saying, I get that some of you are Christians and you are slaves. Here's how you do what I'm calling you to do. He says, you submit to your masters, both to good ones and to wicked ones, verse 18 says. Not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Certainly good and kind masters are easy to submit to. Those masters who care about the good of their servants, the good of their employees, are easy to submit to. But Peter says that Christian slaves are, submit, are to submit to, to be subject, even to the authority of wicked ones, even to the authority of evil slave masters. Certainly this is inherently hard. No one is denying that. But Christians are to do this. Christian slaves, Christian servants, Christian employees even, if you will, are to do it with a mind that is set on God. Peter says in verses 19 and 20, This is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure? This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. It is a good and gracious thing, a thing that speaks of grace when slaves endure unjust suffering at the hands of their masters. Because in so doing, they demonstrate that their ultimate deference is not to their masters, but to God. And they're to do this, as we see in verses 21 through 25, in the pattern of Christ. Peter says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. Peter here says that Christian slaves are called to suffer unjustly because Jesus suffered unjustly. Jesus was wrongly accused by governing authorities, but he did not foment rebellion against Pilate and others. Jesus was spit upon and beaten by the crowd that insulted him. He endured without complaint or retribution. He trusted himself to the will of God, bearing our sin on the cross, that we might also, like him, die to sin and live according to his righteousness. Jesus was beaten and killed so that lost and broken sinners might find healing in his hands, the good shepherd. And the Christian's endurance of unjust suffering points to the fact that we belong to the good shepherd. So then, Christian, I don't think any of us are slaves in this room. Or slave masters in this room. Now your, your job context might feel a little bit like that. But none of us are slaves quite like the slaves were that Peter is, is writing to here. But at the same token, we, we who do have uh, jobs and employers or are employees or perhaps we are employers of employees. As those who are subject to social authority in the places where we work. I think our response to this part of Peter's letter is that we work with integrity and we work faithfully at our jobs where we are. We do this for good and kind bosses and managers, but we also do it for unkind and unreasonable ones. As a follower of Jesus, Christian, you have been called to give up your right to have everything the way you want it, when you want it. 
You have every right, however, to follow Christ's example as you live with gospel integrity in this world, submitting to your boss, submitting to your manager. Now, on the flip side of that, Peter doesn't address slave masters, but let me address those of you who do manage people or are in authority of people in your job context. Don't be the kind of master that makes it hard for people to submit to. Don't be the kind of employer or manager that makes it hard for people to want to work for. As a Christian, love, care for, treat your people that, that you are in charge of and have authority over, uh, authority over with dignity, with respect. Do things for their good. Be generous and kind, even as God, through Christ, was generous and kind to you. We're to submit to governing authority. We're to submit to social authority. And now, get all your tomatoes and rocks and things ready to throw. We are to submit to familial authority, Peter says, in chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. And here Peter addresses both Christian wives and Christian husbands. And in addressing Christian wives, he says that Christian wives are to submit to their own husbands. Now, let's first dispense with what Peter is, who Peter is not talking to and what Peter is not saying. First of all, Peter is not speaking to unbelieving wives. He's not speaking to non-Christian women. Okay? So if you're not a Christian woman, I don't expect you to live this way in your marriage, although I think it's good. But if you are a Christian woman, you should pay attention to these verses, particularly if you are married, especially if you are married. Now, secondly, Peter is not uh, uh, giving here a command that all women are to submit to all men throughout all time. He says, wives, wives... That is, only women who are married be subject to your own husbands. So, Christian women who find themselves married have submission to one person, their own husband. One man, their own husband. Okay? So, let's just dispense with that and hopefully you put away all your rotten tomatoes and your rocks and you're not ready to throw them. Peter says, Christian wives, submit to your own husbands. First of all, whether they're believing or not. Christian woman, if you are married to a man who is a believer you are to submit to his leadership in the home. If you are married to a man who is not a believer, you are to submit to his leadership in the home. Why? Because Peter says that this is a redemptive thing when you do. It's a God-honoring thing and a redemptive thing. He says, wives, be subject to your husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, that is to say, even if some don't obey the gospel, aren't followers of Jesus, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Now, certainly it's easy for a slave to submit to a good boss. And so, so also it's easy for a Christian wife to submit to her Christian husband. But a believing woman should not seek to disrespect or divorce her unbelieving husband, but rather to submit to him as well. Because they might be won over to the gospel, Peter says. Consistent with what Peter instructs the church to do in chapter 2, verse 12, living honorable lives among the Gentiles so that they might see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. He also here instructs Christian wives to live in such an honorable and respectful way that the gospel in her actions, in her life with her unbelieving husband, might win him over to his need for Jesus and to the truth of the gospel. And they're to do this in verses 3 through 6 with chaste and respectful behavior. With chaste and respectful behavior. Peter here gives an injunction. He gives a command uh, against braiding of hair and putting on of jewelry and fancy clothes. And in this way, he, he lets us in a little bit on the state of the world in his day. 
in ancient Rome, women would often dress in lavish and, and even provocative ways so as to intentionally draw attention to themselves, sometimes out of prideful reasons and sometimes even to be intentionally seductive. Peter says, don't put things on that way so as to draw undue attention to yourself. Rather, instead, ladies, spend your energy, spend your focus on adorning the inner person. It's the heart that the Lord sees. It's your character that God, is, that God cares about. And all physical actions, everything that we do with our bodies or put onto our bodies, is ultimately fruit of the state of our hearts. Jesus says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of the abundance of the heart, the body acts. So Peter here says, Christian women, uh, uh, contrary to the women of the world that are, that are dressing themselves up and trying to draw particular attention to themselves in different ways, don't do that. Don't focus on the external. Look at the internal. Focus on what God sees as beautiful, a peaceable and a gentle spirit. I have three daughters, the oldest of which is in second grade now. Um, and I love them all dearly. And I know that with our third, we have trouble ahead. But, um, <laughs> but with our first, uh, a- Abigail uh, has just, uh, just the sweetest, uh, uh, most tender heart, uh, maybe, of, maybe of the three. Uh, or perhaps we're seeing it more in her life right now. And there have been days when she has come home from school and has said something about either the way she looks or the clothes that she wears or the, the way that other girls look or the way that other girls wear, uh, wear their clothes and, and things like that. Uh, so as to almost uh, seek to, uh, or find her identity in those things in what people looks, look like, what she looks like, how she is presented in the world. And can I say that that breaks my heart more than almost anything else that my daughter could say. Why? Because God has made her not to look pretty, but on the inside to be made beautifully resplendent in the grace of Jesus Christ. So ladies, let us set examples for our daughters and our granddaughters and for other uh, women in the context of the church by adorning the inner person, by seeking to be women of God. Here I speak in the first person plural, like I'm going to do this with you. Um, But I hope to encourage you in this. Ladies, would you set an example for our daughters and our granddaughters and for one another uh, of women who who see beauty as not a thing that is not a function of the external, right? But 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 a function of the internal. Now, let me spend a little bit more time addressing husbands. Verse seven, Peter spends six verses talking to wives speaking to wives about their submission to husbands. And now he spends one verse on husbands. And I'm going to spend an inverse amount of time on husbands than I am on wives because I happen to be one. He says, likewise, husbands live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. Christian husbands, you are to honor your wives. Believing or unbelieving, you are to honor your wives. Doubtless, this, this, and you're to do it with gentleness as, the, as she is the weaker vessel, Peter says. Certainly, this is going to rake against some of our sensibilities. What do you mean the woman is the weaker vessel? I go to CrossFit. I can beat my husband in an arm wrestling championship any day. Who does, who does Peter think he is? Is he really saying women are weak? Yes, but not as an insult but rather as a statement of what is generally true. Generally speaking, throughout history, in time, women have not been as physically strong as men. 
You you take any woman and put her up against almost any man, and usually the man is going to be more strong, physically strong. It's a function of our biology and physiology, our design by God that we be this way. Biologically and physiologically, the sexes are different in this manner, but also... Women are weaker vessels in the, sense that, uh, in the sense of the position that they hold in their marriage relationship. They're the ones who are to willingly submit to their husbands in the home. As weaker vessels, they're the ones that are more likely to receive abuse or even mistreatment by the one who has authority. So then Peter says, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way with gentleness. Because number one, she's physically weaker than you. And, and, and generally in abusive relationships, men tend to be the ones that are perpetrating abuse against the women in a physical way. But also because in the, in the context of your relationship to each other and her submission to you and your authority to her, she's in the weaker position. She doesn't have leverage in this way. So treat her with gentleness and respect. Honor her. So what does this mean for you men? You know, it means that because men tend to be stronger physically, because we've been entrusted with leadership in our home, spiritual leadership, uh, even day-to-day leadership in our home, we are to never, ever, ever abuse either our wives or the authority that we have been entrusted with. Men, physical abuse uh, by a husband to his wife, by you to your wife or to any woman is indefensible. Mental, emotional, verbal abuse and neglect are sinful and wicked expressions of masculinity. Peter says husbands are to live with gentleness and understanding. Not, not to be abusive, not to be mistreating. They're there to give special honor to their wives. Because wives are our co-heirs of salvation. Our believing wives, our wives who are Christians, are co-heirs of salvation. You know what this means? This means that women are saved, saved to the same degree and for the same eternal inheritance by faith in Christ, the same as any man. Male or female, we all share equally in status, love, and value in God's sight. So men, understand this, that your Christian wives are your sisters in Christ. So treat them with exceeding love and honor as those who are image bearers of God. And by their faith in the same Christ who saved you, they are indwelt by the same Holy Spirit of God that indwells you. And do this so that your prayers might be effective. Peter says, do this so that your prayers might not be hindered. Without spending much time here, I would just say this. What husband who abuses his wife can stand with confidence in prayer before a holy God? Which of us, as we disrespect our wives, can confidently confidently say that we love the God who made her in his image? What Christian man can joke about and treat women as objects to be had for his own pleasure and not expect the judgment of God in his life? Christian men, honor your wives as co-heirs of salvation so that your prayers might not be hindered. What does all this mean? regard to submitting to authority in the home and exercising authority in the home. I think this Christian wives follow your husband's leadership in the home. Let your husband lead in the home. Understand that God has given to him authority to lead and to He's given responsibility to your husband for your home. So submit to that, follow that, let him lead, do it with grace and with kindness, do it with patience because some of us are slower than others. Unmarried Christian women, you submit to Christ in all things. Your submission is not due to any man in this world until you are married, but your submission is due to Christ. So submit to Jesus in all things. 
Because it's submission to Christ that drives a godly wife's submission to her husband anyway. So you all have that in common. Women, submit to Jesus in all things. Christian husbands, love and lead your wife and family like Christ leads and loves the church. Your example for godly leadership in the home comes to you in Jesus. Ephesians chapter 5, Paul speaks to women, uh, to wives who are to submit to their own husbands, and also to husbands who are to love their own wives. And unlike Peter, Paul spends a whole lot more time talking about husband's responsibility in the home rather than a wife's responsibility. This is what Paul says about how husbands, Christian husbands, are to live, to walk, uh, to lead their homes. He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. How? By giving himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. And in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, but I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Men in this church, expect me to hold you accountable to lead and love your wives like Christ leads and loves the church. I expect you to hold me accountable to lead and love my wife like Christ leads and loves the church. Brother, you're sitting there saying, you're saying to me, you don't know my wife, man. I'm saying I might not, but I know Jesus and I know what he's called you to. He has called you to love her, to honor her, to respect her, to see to her spiritual growth and purity in the same way that Christ gave himself for our spiritual growth and purity. Men, live as Christ in your home. Give yourself for your wives. Submission to authority, particularly in the home, is a difficult thing. And I think it's, it's really easy for us as, as men to focus on what women should do and for women to focus on what men should do in the home. Um, and so I'll just say this. Focus on what Peter says to each of you. Women, focus on what Peter says to women. Men, focus on what Peter says to men. And do that well. Follow Christ obediently in that way. One man has said this about, about the relationship of, a, uh, of his wife submitting to, to him. He said, I believe in a wife submitting to her husband, but I don't believe the husband ever has the right to demand it. In fact, I know that when I am worthy of submission, my wife submits, and when I'm unworthy of it, she does not. Men, if you look like Christ in your home, your wife will want to follow that kind of leadership. If you're loving her by giving of yourself constantly for her good, for her maturity, for her purity and growth in Christ, she will lovingly, desiringly want to to follow you in that. Women, as you live respectfully with your husbands to whom God has given authority and responsibility to lead in your home, and you do that in a godly way, that will serve as motivation for your husbands to live and to, to love, to lead you like Christ leads the church. When my wife, who sets an excellent example, I feel for women in our church in this way, when she follows my leadership, even though I trip and stumble and fall all over myself, and she graciously, patiently waits with me as I grow as a leader, that makes me want to lead her like Christ all the more. I don't want to disrespect or dishonor the submission that she gives to me. I, I want to lead her well. I want to lead her like Christ leads her. Peter says, we live honorable Christian lives in the world 
in the context and the presence of non-believers by submitting to authority and even by exercising authority well. But then secondly, in chapter 3, verses 8 through 12, he says we also do this by loving one another, loving one another deeply. He says here in verse 8, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Now Peter has shifted from talking about submission to authority in the world, and now he's talking about how the church relates to one another in the world. And they do this with deference and sympathy. With deference and sympathy. Here in verse 8, Peter gives us five characteristics that, that have five sort of commands, that have this wonderful sort of inverse symmetry. What do I mean by that? By that I mean that the first and last of these commands go hand in hand. That uh, a unity of mind and a humble mind go well together. Unity of mind or harmony, as some of your translations may say, begets humility. And humility, caring for others more than you care for yourself, begets harmony amongst one another. Similarly, sympathy, the second of these characteristics, and tenderheartedness, the fourth of these characteristics, are virtually synonymous with one another, aren't they? And at the center of all this, what do we have? What is our attention drawn to? Again, for the fourth time, I believe, if my counting is correct in First Peter, the command to love one another. The command to brotherly love. All this is to say that the pattern of living and mutual care and accountability that exists among Christians stands as a real and visible witness to the power of the gospel among us. As we do these things, as we have unity of mind or harmony, sympathy, brotherly love, tender hearts and humble minds all together within the body of Christ, we give a witness to the world as to what a transformed life by Christ looks like. We know this because Peter calls us to do this in the same way that he commands the church to submit to earthly authorities in the pattern of Christ yet again. Look at verse 9. He says, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you are called that you may obtain a blessing. He uses almost the exact same language he did just earlier when he was addressing how, addressing how slaves are to submit to their masters. Using the example of Jesus, who did not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but rather, like Christ, we are to bless one another so that we might receive a blessing. And that blessing is, we see in verses 10 through 12, closeness with God the Father. Why do we love each other? Why do we pursue harmony? Why do we seek unity in the body of Christ as a witness to the world so that we might grow closer to God the Father? In verses 10 through 12, Peter quotes for the second time in his letter, Psalm chapter 34. Here he says that a life of gospel integrity, where we submit to authority, where we exercise authority well, where we love and care for one another, all that as we do that draws us closer and closer to God the Father. God gives special heed to those who live by faith in the likeness of his Son. Psalm 34, and here in verse 12, where Peter quotes it, says that God the Father's eyes are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers. That is to say that in our suffering for trusting Jesus, as we follow Jesus as obedient Christians in this world and suffer for it, God looks on us with care. Care that he might provide what we need and comfort us in times of grief. And he turns his ear to our prayers that we might know that we have a father in heaven who hears us in our distress and who loves us intensely and desires to work all things together in our life, whether easy or hard, whether uh, simple or difficult, all things together for our good, because we've been called according to his purposes. Within the Christian body, the body of believers, then within the church, 
Christian, you are called to set aside your rights and your privileges for the benefit of others and for the unity of Christ's body. You are called to give of yourself regularly and often and generously for the spiritual growth of other brothers and sisters in our body, for their maturity in Christ, for the growth of our children, that they might know Jesus at a young age and trust Jesus at a young age, that we might honor our, our, the elderly among us and the senior, senior citizens, that we might honor their legacy of faith, that we might pour our lives into one another as we grow more and more into, as Peter said early in his letter, this building, this spiritual house, that God is building up to be a witness to the world. In all that we do, Christian, as followers of Jesus, who is our Savior, who is the standard of our holy living, then let us commit ourselves in every area of our life to godly submission to the authority that God has ordained. Let us commit ourselves to exercise authority well and in a Christ-like way, loving, generous, sacrificing. And let us commit ourselves to the kind of love for one another that says to the world that is watching, we have been changed by Jesus.